We live in that changed world today. What God did in the Middle East during the period of the Acts of the Holy Spirit changed the world. And we're here this morning because of that. Now, there is a phenomenon every year throughout our entire country that happens on a regular occurring basis. It's a series of meteorological events that drives thousands and thousands of Americans from their regular daily lives and normal homes and properties to a different place. You know what that is? It's called winter. Right? Some of them are probably maybe watching online this morning from Arizona or Florida. Sometimes we uh, refer to them as snowbirds. But uh, winter scatters people across the United States, the older generation, like crazy. Florida, Arizona, New Mexico. My dad is in Arizona right now. Drove his motorhome himself south of Phoenix to uh, work at a Christian camp this, this winter. This is my dad, 88 years old, standing on scaffolding, building walls. Now, he could, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, I, I yes, right? You know, uh, the fact that he still can, praise the Lord for that. You know, last, last winter he had trouble with his neck and with his back. And you know what the doctor said? You need to stop swinging a hammer so much. Well, he doesn't. And I don't think it's in his nature. And it's not in his nature to go to Arizona for the winter and play golf or hang out with only, a, you know, his friends or whatever and do that sort of thing. And, and so he's been retired for, I don't know, well, he's really not, I would say, retired, retired as sometimes we think of in America. But, but I hold my dad up as an illustration of the fact that someone who's 88 years old, active in the Gideon's ministry, can still work the mission of God that he has on this planet and be retired and enjoy the summertime. He, he's with a group called Hard Hats for Christ. You can go there if you want. Maybe you're retired or thinking about retirement and you're skilled in, in some way. And uh, I know that they... they pay for his motorhome hookup, and they give him, I believe, two meals a day um, as part of their ministry, and they work, and uh, he's the oldest guy on this particular crew building, building walls. Last year, he was roofing. Um, again, um, I, I'm not saying it's bad to play golf when you're retired, but, but I would say it's bad to only play golf when you're retired. The Lord is not finished with us no matter what age we are. And, and we're going to see that as we look at missional movement, our, uh, our theme for this morning. Now, on a more serious note, as Pat referred to earlier, people are scattered from their homeland all over the world. In fact, according to a new report from the United Nations Refugee Agency, 65.6 million people on our planet today are currently displaced from their homes. That's 25.3 million living as refugees in other countries, such that are coming across the border in Turkey, and it's another 40.3 million living as displaced persons inside their own countries, like is occurring in the Cameroon right now and other, other countries where people are being displaced. Now, civil war is, is one major reason why these people are fleeing for their own safety. Religious persecution is often another thing that causes people to flee from their homes. 
And one good result of what's happening from these people fleeing is that they're fleeing to countries that are open to missionaries. We have missionaries in Spain right now who are outreaching to all of the refugees who are coming across the Mediterranean because they can't go to their own country, but they're coming to them. So in that sense, there's some good that's coming out of this, but but people are, are fleeing for their very lives. Now, religious persecution is what Saul, who would later become Paul, we're going to talk about that next week, is engaged in. Paul, Saul, is going from house to house, dragging people out of their homes because they profess the name of Jesus Christ. He's arresting them. He's putting them in prison. Uh, As we saw last week in the end of Stephen's life when he was stoned, Paul was standing there uh, giving praise to what was going on. And he's not content with only staying in Jerusalem because these people are fleeing. Paul, or Saul, excuse me, is pursuing them. He gets permission from the church to go hunt these people down in other countries and drag them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison. He is intent on squelching this young church. And it seems from the outside that dark, dark times are in the future for this church young and budding church. In fact, Saul may even believe that his efforts are going to prove successful in putting a stop to this. Now, we see what they're facing in Acts chapter 8. If you would turn there, if you haven't already, we're in Acts chapter 8 today. It's page 1085 in the uh, Bibles that are underneath the seats. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, um, you can just grab a Bible from underneath the seat and go to 1085, and that will take you to Acts chapter 8. And this is what it says, verse 1, And Saul approved of their killing him, Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, who wants to be thrown in prison? I don't want to be thrown in prison. I don't want to... You know, as they say, get three hops in a cot. I don't want to be that guy. And neither do these people. And what is happening? They mourn Stephen's death deeply and they flee. They scatter. They, they run. They try and hide. Look at verse 4. Let's continue reading. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Wait a minute. These people are free, fleeing for their lives because of the name of Jesus. And wherever they go, what are they doing? They're proclaiming the name of Jesus. Are they nuts? I mean, why don't they stop? Well, the obvious answer is it must be important, more important to them to share this good news that they have in their life than it is to worry too much about their freedom or their security or even... Their very life. Now, in this scattering, it says in verse 5 that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the cra- so Philip was one of the seven that was chosen to, uh, to wait tables. He was chosen as a deacon to, to fill in the gaps where, the, uh, where the, 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 the widows were falling through the cracks and not being fed. But we also know that those seven men that were chosen for that were were highly educated, were very faithful, were very holy men. 
And Philip seems to have expanded his, I don't know, I'm sure he waited some tables there too, but now he finds himself in Samaria proclaiming the the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The power of God was moving in the lives of the people. Samaritans, no less, right? Half-breeds, according to a Jewish person. Now, with a broad brushstroke, I'm going to paint uh, what Luke writes here, the account of Simon the sorcerer. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But Simon the sorcerer recognized that Philip was wielding some sort of power that seemed to be greater than his because the people were listening to him more than they were Simon. And the people were believing Philip. So Simon, though he had power, he was a sorcerer, wasn't as great as the Holy Spirit. So it says that he himself believed and was baptized. Okay, But his attitude and motives weren't in the right place, and we see that later in the passage. It seems that he was just looking for a way to become more powerful himself. This is something that he was sort of drunk with this power and he wanted more. He wasn't... He wasn't humbly seeking a savior. He wasn't, he wasn't believing and baptized for a genuine faith. He was saying the right things, but deep in his heart he must not have truly believed. That's the conclusion that I come to. Which should make us note that we need to be sure that our motives and attitudes are in line with the word of God. What does God expect of us when we believe? How does he want us to respond? Verse 14 goes on, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure why they didn't receive the Holy Spirit at belief. We see that later in Scripture, we see that occurring, and I don't know why God does things differently now than he did right here with these disciples, but that's what it says, that's how it occurred. Philip is in Samaria, they're praying for them, and the Holy Spirit comes. Later, and that includes now, again, we see the Holy Spirit immediately entering those who believe. Now, look at Simon again, look at verse 18. When Simon saw, this is where we get a hint of his attitude, that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offers them money. And he says, give me also the ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon is out for Simon, and Peter is not at all pleased with this request of Simon's. In fact, it truly reveals his colors. He wants to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you this morning, it's not for sale. Salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit is not for sale. Not for money, not for righteousness, or any effort of any kind. We can't buy it. It's a gift. It's given to us. We cannot justify ourselves. So, verse 20, Peter lays it out. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. 
For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. He's still bartering. He's not surrendering. He's not repentant. He's saying, well, you do this for me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, the the Samaritan village thing, the Gentile thing is important. We're going to look at that more next week. And I'm not really sure what Simon decided. We aren't told. It still seems he doesn't understand that the gift of God, uh, as he is asking Peter and John to plead on his, his behalf, he's, he's wanting them to secure this for him. Now, we can, see people, we can see people in our own lives that need Jesus, that need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that need to be rescued. And we can pray, we can stand in the gap for them, we can pray for them, and we should faithfully day after day after day after day. But there isn't anything that you or I can do monetarily or even spiritually that can save another person. That's between them and God, and them and God only. We shouldn't predetermine also what we think someone is going to decide. Because sometimes we, th- we have those conversations in our head, right? We, we sort of get this sense that we, should, that we should ask somebody if they go to church or if they've ever thought about Jesus Christ. But in the back of our head, we, we, we hear this voice that says, ah, they would never be interested. And, and so we don't even broach the subject. We, we should not predetermine what someone else is going to decide for them. We need to let them decide. We must continue to love and share and bear witness to the power of God and let him do the rest. Now, as far as payment for salvation and forgiveness, there is only one purchase necessary for salvation. There is only one purchase necessary for salvation. Who was the one who purchased that? Jesus. Jesus purchased it. He made that purchase in the form of a perfect sacrifice, the shedding of blood. Paul explains this in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14. For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Jesus paid the price for our sin. We can surrender. We can receive the gift offered us, but we can't do anything to justify ourselves before a holy God. God gives it freely to us. And again, I think verse 4 bears repeating. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It didn't matter. This was such a good thing in their life. They couldn't help but speak about it. I know I've said this before, but it's like that, that cold remedy or that sickness remedy that you stumbled across that really worked for you. Every time you see somebody that has a sniffle or something, you might mention it. I mean, some people get really passionate about things like that, right? Let's get passionate about our Savior who saved us, and his name is Jesus. Now, what is this called when we do this? What is the word that, that we have put on this? It's evangelism. Now, that may have just raised the hair on the back of your neck, because when we say the word evangelism, it just freaks us out. We get all nervous and we think we're going to screw up or we're not going to say the right thing or we're not going to know the answers or whatever. And that's Satan talking to you and me. He wants to convince us that we're, that we're going to be terrible at it and that we should never even try it. Don't even attempt it. You might screw it up. 
Like God's shoulders aren't big enough to handle us misspeaking or saying something wrong, right? Now, we don't all have the gift of evangelism, but we are all called to be evangelists. We are call- we're our, I believe we're all called to be prophets. We're all called to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And as we're going to see today, it's not only an amazing privilege, but it's not as scary as some of us have been led to believe. Now, our final point last week was that the Holy Spirit will always give us the strength and power to do what God wants us to do and what he gives us to do. And that's exactly what we see happening to Philip when he's healing people. If, if God wanted you to pray for somebody that they would be healed and you were obedient to that call and you did, what do you think would happen? They would be healed. Would that be you? No, it would be the Holy Spirit giving you the power to do what God has called you to do. Now, I think sometimes we can lack faith in that and we can sort of recoil against that and not follow through obediently, whatever that might be. Healing is someone is kind of an extreme example, but, but I think it's still an example. Now, what happens to Philip? Philip, and I don't know if it's a dream, I don't know if it's direct words, if he got an email or a text message, God says, hey, I want you to go down this road. And so he does. And Philip comes across this man in a chariot. And I think we can apply what we see happening to Philip directly to our own personal lives this week. You see, there's at least four things that we can expect from the Holy Spirit as we live our lives on a daily basis. And four of those we're going to go over right now and we see them in Philip's life. The first one is this, the Holy Spirit prepares us. Philip was one of the seven deacons chosen for his faithfulness and passion for Christ. He was a follower of Jesus. Not one of the twelve, but a disciple of Jesus. He was growing. He was maturing in his walk. He was being challenged. He, he left Jerusalem and went to Samaria. And as Christ followers, we are all his disciples. And we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. Now, Philip is actively serving the widows and bearing witness to the work of Jesus Christ the Messiah on the cross. And it also says that Philip was healing people, paralyzed, lame people. Again, God was giving him the power to do that. And Philip is gaining and following a following of some people wanting to check out what was happening, which included Simon. And Philip had studied the Old Testament. He'd been taught by the disciples. The Holy Spirit had been preparing him for evangelistic opportunities. And this is true for all of us. Since the day we come to faith, since the day we believe, I believe God has it in his mind for us to be an extension of him on this planet to share the good news of the gospel with somebody. So we, as Christ followers, study the Bible, we experience the movement of God in our lives on a daily basis, and we grow. We spend time in meditation and in prayer. We listen, we hear, we move, we work, we live. We're we're prepared more and more each day. So when we're presented with an opportunity, we will be prepared, as prepared as we need to be. For that opportunity. As we attend church, as we attend our Bible studies, 
We learn God's word. We learn how to apply it on a daily basis. The Holy Spirit then illuminates the understanding in his word. He lights our path and he shows us the way that we should go. He still does that today. He's active in our lives today. Yes, there is no doubt that the Holy Spirit prepares us. The Holy Spirit also, number two, positions us. And that's exactly what he did with Stephen. Look at verses 26 and 27, the beginning of 27. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. All right, I'm heading south. The Holy Spirit positions us. I believe that we can trust the Holy Spirit to put us in positions every day to have an opportunity to share the gospel. He could be moving us to another town. He could be moving us to another job. He could be putting us in the place of some family members in a certain course of a certain day. I mean, I was at a basketball game a couple weeks ago, and two people came up to me and talked to me about church-related things. God, wherever we are, God gives us opportunities to talk about Him. Maybe it's positioning us at a school, a college, a high school, a middle school. I mean, in an elementary, at church. Go south to the road. So what did he do? You ever get a sense that you're supposed to do something? You don't know where it came from. You just, you just, you just have a feeling. Well, that was what Philip did, and what did he do? He obeyed that. He went south on the road. It says he started out, and as he went, his opportunity radar was engaged, and he's looking. Why am I on this road? Where, what opportunity am I going to have here? And lo and behold, it just so happened, verse 27, that as he started out, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, this is not modern-day Ethiopia. It would have actually been modern-day Sudan, where Philip is. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, verse 28, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, I, in my reading, this is not a chariot with a horse flaming down the road, okay? This is probably a chariot behind an ox or a donkey. It could have been a horse, but he's not blistering down the road. I mean, he's able to read. He's not just hanging on. So, when it says that Philip walked up next to him, it's not like, you know, Philip was on his hoverboard next to the chariot, okay? I just want to make sure that we have a good picture of this. On his way home, verse 28, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So... That's what Philip did. He went near it. Now, again, I, 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 how do we apply this to our everyday life? Do you ever go through the course of the day and someone just comes to mind? For whatever reason, this person's name comes to mind. What do you do with that? Do you just, ah, oh, well, I wonder how they are. And then you just go on about your business? Or do you stop, maybe pray for them, maybe send them a text message? Hey, I don't know why, but you just came to my mind and I just wanted to check in and let you know I'm praying for you. Or how are you doing? I think we would be amazed if it, we actually took 30 seconds 
to respond to someone coming to our mind what sort of conversation or support or care we might be able to lend to that person. Think about that this week. God wants to use us in many ways. So he prepares us, he positions us. Next, number three, the Holy Spirit creates proximity. And it, it sounds sort of the same as the first one, but it's not. Another way that I think we could say this is that he gives us opportunity for connection. Because we can be prepared and we can be positioned, but then never have the opportunity. We can be in the same gym, but not end up right next to this person. That's what the Holy Spirit does for Philip. He's, he's, he tells him, to go up. So Philip runs up to the chariot. He, he has to be there for a little period of time because he hears what the eunuch is reading. And then Philip engages and he asks him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? That's not an offensive question. I don't know, somebody in our world might think of a way to make that offensive. But do you understand what you're reading? And Philip, Philip asked, how can I, the eunuch replied, unless someone explains it to me. So, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. You know, when God's working on someone's heart and we are obeying his promptings to us, God's going to give us a connection opportunity. He just is. In this case, as it often is, even in our opportunities, the conversation begins with a question and an honest answer. Now, I recognize that sometimes we can be a little cynical in our questioning, Or if we are genuine in our questioning, some people can be cynical in their answers. And they're not even really interested in getting an answer to their question or whatever they're saying. And we need to recognize that that's what's going on and maybe step back and talk about the weather or how terrible the Broncos were this year or some other subject to not make it an uncomfortable moment. But how are we going to know unless we ask the first question? Situations arise out of the relationships that we already have because the Holy Spirit has already positioned you and He's creating that proximity for us with them. A coach who helps a group of girls or boys walk through a tragic loss of a friend or a teammate or a family member. A pastor who meets a family for the first time as he walks them through the beginning of a marriage or the end of a life. A realtor who is showing a house to someone and the interested party opens up about something that's going on in their life. An employee of a business who makes the transparent statement by saying, my whole life really is a mess right now. And I have to say that when I heard that statement... I blew it. I didn't seize it. I froze and thought, whoa. I mean, I had just met this person not very long before. There wasn't any sort of friendship, connection, relationship. And, and I, I should have at least asked another question or two. Now, that person, I know where they work, and I frequent this place, so I will have another opportunity. My prayer is that maybe that wasn't the moment that God had prepared me for, but there's another one, and he continues to work on this person's heart. But unless, unless I ask another question and lead the conversation spiritually, it's not going to go there. It just isn't. And I need to trust enough. 
We need to have our radar up and be ready. The Holy Spirit will bring opportunities and connections our way. And as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, I believe we'll be prepared and we'll have more and more that we can share with them. The Holy Spirit will prepare us, position us, create proximity for us. And finally, number four, the Holy Spirit empowers our proclamation. This is the good part. Because again, as I said earlier, we shirk from evangelism because we think we're going to screw it up, when in reality, it's not us that changes that person's life anyway. Honestly, I could come here on a Sunday morning with the lamest, worst sermon on the planet, and God could, could have you walk out of this place having been impacted the most you've ever been by any sermon. Now, that's never my goal, to have the lamest, worst sermon But it's not me. It's not any eloquence that I could copy or come up with. It's it's God that does the work in your heart and in mine. And we need to realize that every day when we're talking with people and we're relating with them and we're, we're sharing about spiritual things. It's not us. The Holy Spirit is doing this. Verse 32, this is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Someone himself or someone else? He doesn't even know about Jesus yet. It's not like it's been on Twitter Right? I mean, that stuff moved about the country and other countries by word of mouth and by movement, which God is doing by scattering them. Then Philip, verse 35, began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. From the Old Testament, Philip is prophesying about the Holy Spirit, about Jesus Christ. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Philip covered it all. Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Wow. I mean, what did he just experience? Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So the eunuch just happened to be reading in Isaiah the prophecy about Jesus Christ coming to be the sacrifice. See how God works? He was reading Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. Which is odd. I, most of the sheep that I sheared were not silent. So he did not open his mouth. Mark 10, 45. For even, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Philip, verse 35 says, started with that very passage and off he went. The good news of Jesus Christ came right out. This is what Jesus did. This is probably why it had to be done. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but if you're reading and you're reading verse numbers, and I didn't refer to verse number 37, 
Anybody have verse 37? Raise your hand if you have a verse 37 in your Bible this morning. I have one in the far back. There are some translations that include verse 37. Why would they not include verse 37 in your Bible? Well, here is what those of you who have verse 37. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I didn't put it in my notes. If you look in your footnotes of your Bible, it probably says uh, what that verse is. As essentially, um, verse 37 makes it clear that the eunuch believed. It's a statement about that. I really wish I had put it in here. Can I, can I see your Bible? Oh, you got it underlined. Jeanette. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, okay, let me read before. What prevents me from being baptized? That's verse 36. Verse 37, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, most reliable, most, the most reliable manuscripts do not have that in them. It's believed that scribes added that later to make sure that people understood that there was no question that the eunuch believed. Well, Philip is not going to baptize him unless he truly believes. So verse 37 is absolutely true. The eunuch believed. It's just that some believe that that, that doesn't fit with the earlier manuscripts. So they leave verse 37 out and put a footnote in your modern translation that says this is what that was. Uh, here's here's a I, I want to read this to you and I don't I don't think I put it up did I put the Joe Aldrich uh, statement up here this this is what Joe Aldrich says he says that evangelism is what spills over when we bump into someone don't you like that you think of a glass of water and you bump into someone and and you stop and it spills onto them that's what evangelism is it's when we stop for a moment with someone else. And it just spills out because we have our radar up and, and, and we're, we're wanting to see people with the eyes of God. Evangelism is what spills over when we bump into someone. Question, have you bumped into anyone lately? Are you near enough to non-Christians so that the fullness of your Christianity can spill over into their lives? Have you come up alongside a hurting heart and stayed there? Are you following what Jesus taught on a daily basis so that you, in fact, when God puts you in that position, that you are in a position to be able to share the good news? Because sometimes, if we're comfortable with sin in our life and we're living that way, it's not really a very good testimony, other than the testimony later that God didn't strike us dead but forgave us. I listened to a, a helpful podcast recently featuring Randy Newman talking about his book Questioning Evangelism, Engaging Hearts the Way Jesus Did, and he argues that we should focus more on having dialogue with people instead of just giving an evangelistic sales pitch. You know, we sort of spew out the, uh, I don't know, the, the Roman's road in front of somebody, and we don't stop to actually find out or think whether they're even asking any of those questions to begin with. It, it's a conversation with someone. That's what Philip does here. He starts with a question. And we see it. 
In John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. That means that as a church, we shouldn't focus on our seating capacity as much as we should our sending capacity. And we should all consider ourselves sent by the Savior. You know, it's time to live the mission. It's time to live the mission. Just like the Blues Brothers, right? We're on a mission from God. We are on a mission from God. Let's engage. Whether we feel awkward about it or not, let's make it less awkward. Let's just ask some questions and see where the Holy Spirit takes us. Let's recognize that the Holy Spirit prepares positions and gives us proximity. And then let's engage in the conversation and let's, let's trust Him to do the work in their life that He wants to do. Now who, I think on your Connect card, is a space for you if you didn't fill that out. And Did we take the offering? Oh. Okay, if you did not put your Connect card in the offering plate and you still have it and you can look at that one, who can you specifically be praying for an opportunity to engage with? And, and, and you might be saying, I don't know about this. Take a step. Take that step and say, you know what? I'm going to be bold in the Holy Spirit and I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is still alive and well in our world today and He wants to work through me. Who can you engage this week? Maybe it's calling someone on the phone and saying, hey, you know that thing you shared with me the other day? I just wanted to let you know that I'm praying for you about that thing. Is there anything else I could specifically pray for? That sort of breaks the ice a little bit. I've not met anyone yet who said, nah, I don't want you to pray for me. I've had atheists say, sure, yes. It's a crack. It's, it's, a, it's the light shining through a little open doorway. Let's have the worship team come up. We're going to close with a final song, but I, I want to put Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 up. Do I have that, Craig? I want this to be our benediction today. Um, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the example that we have of Philip. And Father, I pray that, uh, that every one of us in this room who has put our faith and trust in you as our Lord and Savior would see that conversation with other people about spiritual things isn't a scary thing. And that you can prepare us and position us Help us to trust when the proximity happens and that your power will do what you want to do. Father, I pray that as a church, we would see people the way that you do. Father, thank you for this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.